0: In the education technology business, Larry Berger is considered, if not the smartest guy in the room, and certainly one of the wiser ones. With more than 20 years in the industry, Larry has seen the ups and downs and twists and turns of the industry. Back in 2000, he co-founded Wireless Generation, which pioneered the use of data, digital diagnostics, and assessments to support students. That company was bought in 2010 by News Corporation which invested more than a billion dollars into the company and rebranded it as Amplify. Now, News Corp's adventure proved to be a short one. Amplify, if you remember, tried to create a tablet for the classroom. That effort did not quite pan out, and News Corp ended up selling Amplify to investors in 2015. Today, Larry Berger leads Amplify, and it's no longer as high-profile or big as it once was. So what is Amplify today and what have the past years taught him about where the company is going? We recently sat down with Larry to get an update on what Amplify has been up to and to get his thoughts on how the curriculum business is evolving. Larry also offers thoughts on the challenges facing the industry today, including a problem with what he calls an engineering model of personalized learning. That's all coming right up. My name is Tony Wan. And I'm your host for this week's Ed Surge on Air podcast. Um, across from me, we've got Larry Berger uh, amongst the education entrepreneur uh, community. Larry, you're considered one of the uh, wisest guys in the room. You've seen the ups, the downs, the twists and turns of having been in this space for what, like over 20, 20 years yeah, now? Yeah, over 20 years. Over 20 years. All right, well, welcome to Ed Search Live. It's a pleasure Thanks. to have you. Thank you. Uh, I guess my first question is, as someone who has covered Amplify at the peak of its, let's say, publicity, what is Amplify in 2018 today? Sure. What is sure.
1: Amplify today? So there's really two things that anchor Amplify today. There's a, a body of work we've been doing for a long time around diagnosing reading and math issues in young kids so these are observational assessments teachers do them on a mobile device or a laptop Um, they do them one-on-one with kids Uh, so it's not a kid on a computer it's a teacher sitting with a kid as they are learning to read or at younger ages even just identifying letters and the sounds they make Um, and then capturing that data and being able to give feedback to teachers to parents to the system as a whole about how reading progress is happening and that's the thing Mm -hmm. we started doing back in 2003 and it's grown and evolved. And uh, Is that the
0: kind of stuff that falls under the umbrella of assessment? Yeah,
1: that would be formative or diagnostic yeah. assessment. Mm-hmm. And um, and so we started in that. Uh, and then um, over the last uh, decade, we've started to do more and more in curriculum. And I would say now Amplify is increasingly a curriculum company. So we do kindergarten through eighth grade English language mm-hmm. arts curriculum. Mm-hmm. We do kindergarten through eighth grade science curriculum. And these are blended Programs, so they're they're not just a textbook. They're a lot of interactive and simulation and social simulation experiences. Uh, but they are also um, uh, there's a lot of print materials, and in the case of science, there's a lot of hands-on science experiments okay. that kids are doing too. Yeah.
0: I just want to ask that question because there is, you know, what, not too long ago, there's a period of time where the question was, what wasn't, what <laughs> isn't Amplify, right? You know, we're talking about there was tablets, games, MOOCs, yeah. Yeah. other kinds of services. Yeah. Um, you know, as you kind of got rid of some of that, you know, condensed yeah. a little bit, I mean, what do you think was the biggest lesson that you've learned or maybe what your fellow, like, ed-tech entrepreneurs can learn
1: from sure. that whole, what I would say, roller coaster yeah. kind of experience? yeah. Well, one thing is I think uh, education requires a lot of patience, that the products that become great in education rarely do so because someone invents something in a garage and puts it out there and it it becomes huge overnight. And uh, the thing that tends to happen is you invent something, you try it in schools, you realize you didn't quite get it right, teachers teach you how to make it better. And over a few years, you get to something that's pretty good. And over a few more years, you get to something that's great. And it's a real breakthrough. And I think um, I think I I love that journey, like I wouldn't want it to be any other way. I like the learning process, the back and forth, I think it makes us better. But if mm-hmm. you're a big company and we got acquired into a big company, you, right. you want to be able to just say, can't we just spend more money and skip all that and build something uh, that's that's gonna make an immediate impact. And so, mm-hmm. um, so we tend to, uh, to, to, before we were part of, of that whole story, we built things sort of carefully and methodically and made sure that we'd really researched right. them before we scaled them. Um, and I think right now we're, we're back to that. We're saying we're going to uh, really prove that things are working. And it's really in the last couple of years that we've said these products are ready mm-hmm. and it's time for, them to, for the world to start knowing about them and... Um, and I think now we have the timing right, and these things are succeeding. Yeah. Um, but but you, it's hard to rush things in K twelve.
0: And In some ways, I mean, as part of News Corp, that you know a company that does quarterly earnings, um, you know, people calling, you know, bankers calling you every t- about your results every quarter. Yeah. Was that just uh, kind of an unrealistic time frame for some of the th- efforts that you wanted to kind of take off? It, did it just need a little bit more time?
1: Yeah, I for think all that? I think education. Products grow methodically over time, just in terms of how they how they work, and then schools take their time, piloting, expanding, eventually going district or statewide. But those those things are multi-year things that have as much to do with the relationship you establish with the people in the school and the goals that you're helping them achieve uh, as they do any kind of. Um, marketing or business or publicity. And uh, so I think increasingly we've been sort of keeping our heads down, um, trying to build great stuff and um, and trying to respond to school customers. And, and I think in that sense, we're yeah. back and it's really... Yeah, um, for a company named
0: Amplify, business. it's been a little bit quiet <laughs> over the past year I, or I so. I think it was,
1: a, it was an intentional effort to say, <laughs> let's really focus on what we are doing and um, and let's let teachers and students start to be the voice of uh, whether what we're up to is is great. And and um, and that's been the really fun thing is that while we've been quiet, uh, not as much publicity as back in the day, the teachers and the schools are starting to really um, speak up about how this stuff is is helping them. Uh, tell us where you see the uh, the K twelve curriculum
0: market these days. You just said that Amplify is more of a curriculum company these days yeah um you know when we talk about K- k-12 curriculum we used to talk about the big three yeah. right? pearson mcgraw hill uh, helton they used to own the channels all the distribution yeah. channels but i think you know in light of the transitions that the big three or the other big publishers have undergone in the past um four or five years mm-hmm. digital transitions um you know, Pearson is looking for the K- to shed his K-12 horseware. Yeah. How does that kind of change? How does the K-12 curriculum market shaking, shaking up for you? I mean, yeah. is, is it easier for yeah, you? No, a a little company, like do to get the foot in the door now?
1: Yeah, what, I mean, I would say that there is a certain uh, fatigue with those big publishers. There's a sense we don't, we don't want to buy the same thing that we bought last time. But historically, there hasn't actually been a great choice. Like, uh, those are the only people... Who can play in this very large? Uh, you have to build a product that can have enough curriculum when you're doing core curriculum mm-hmm. that kids can do it and teachers can do it every single day to hit all of their standards all of the years from K to eight. And so the investment that that has required has meant that only a few companies with the resources to do that can afford to build that product. And then, even more so, as you said, the control of the, the channel, um, only a few companies have enough salespeople out there in enough places that they can meet with the schools in their territory and so we, we when we were a little startup wireless generation uh, we just didn't play in curriculum at all because it was um, it's too expensive to, to enter that space and so those guys get to be unchallenged the big ones, but part of what happened when we were part of News Corp and now with the support of Emerson is people have said let's let's make the investment to create an alternative, to create an upstart in that sector and so we are building curriculum that sells side by side in those big textbook adoptions and in the big uh, district decisions about what are we going to do in science, what are we going to do in English. Have language the chart. rules of the game changed in the no.
0: way that, that the stuff <laughs> to go? Or that's saw? been the amazing so thing. So, what, what, what's giving you kind of a what, what gives you optimism that you can go yeah. toe to toe with?
1: You know, it's interesting. I mean, so I think when I wasn't doing core curriculum, I was assuming there's some way that people buy textbooks and Um, and that's, that's a different world. We are folks who make something and get buy-in of teachers and eventually create a sale at the district level. Um, whereas I think in the, um, in, in the, and and they do big publishing with, I, I didn't even know what the process is. Now that we do it and we're learning about it, it's pretty fascinating. I mean, those are decisions that are made in what you might have thought was a kind of optimal way to make an education decision, which is it's a committee of teachers who are going to actually Mm -hmm. teach with this stuff. Remember, for supplemental, it's often someone in the district office thinks it's cool and buys it for all the teachers, whether they like it or not. With this, it's the actual committee of teachers accountable to their peers, meeting often in private. So it's not even like you can influence them Mm -hmm. to decide what curriculum to do. Furthermore, in some states uh, and in some districts, they also pilot really extensively. So they're trying the different things and saying, which one's actually working well for our kids? Mm -hmm. Again, different than, I saw it at a trade show. It seemed really cool. I bought it for the um, the school. And so so there's a pretty rigorous process of how stuff gets chosen over on that side. The challenge is it's expensive to participate. They want you to send samples. They want you to support pilots, et cetera. But... Um, I think it is actually a pretty meritocratic decision that happens at the end and we're because we think we've built something a little more exciting than your average textbook uh, a lot more exciting. Um, is it
0: fully digital? Is there a print version? What's your take on yeah, that print digital transition? Yeah, is yeah. that happening?
1: It's know? interesting. Cool. Uh, we, um, we built uh, at first something that was pretty heavily digital. We said let's let's if we're going to really invent a new way to do this, let's take advantage of what the technology can do. And um, it was still in many ways a traditional idea of education. It wasn't kids on screens in rows learning from the screen. It was very much computer on the corner of the desk so that kids and teachers could interact with each other but supported by technology. And the original model was every kid needs to have a device for this to work really well. And what we quickly learned was... um, Schools were happier with something that was much more blended, meaning when I want to teach with technology, I can do that. When I want to do something in print and when I want to do a little bit of both, all of that is supported. And a much more flexible idea of the technology-to-student ratio. So uh, in a lot of cases, we are now in 3-to-1 classrooms or 4-to-1 classrooms. But but there is still a meaningful role for technology. And I, I think the teachers sense that a lot of what the publishers have done is taken a print program and layer a bit of superficial technology around it and I think they can tell that this is we tried to rethink their experience of teaching to make it easier for them to make them have more uh, efficacy in, in, um, in the ways they can support kids uh, using digital and then we also supported them with print in ways that just serve a whole bunch of use cases including the one where the network goes down and you need mm-hmm. to do what we call an unplugged lesson
0: yeah. is the curriculum that you're producing now is that openly licensed
1: some of it is so so and we're really trying to get our head around that you know we what you take on the
0: appetite and yeah. real, the realities of oer adoption yeah. right we've seen in previous you know education administrations you know a push a signal at least to yeah. go to go open, yeah, uh, go yeah. OER. What's your take on that?
1: Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a tricky one. I mean, I think uh, I would say right now there's a little bit of a moment that is um, around math and ELA at the time that new standards were rolling out in a preponderance of states. There was a sense that the publishers are a little bit behind the eight ball. They don't have uh, a curriculum. And so let's fund something using government dollars. And because they're government dollars, let's make it OER. And that, that was a moment I think was an interesting response to getting something out there in a hurry. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the things that I think those programs are learning is that a great curriculum is not a thing you ship once. It's something that you ship and you improve and you enhance and you adapt it for different states and different contexts and you figure out that it needs a whole bunch of supports for English language learners and it needs a whole bunch of supports Uh, for various uh, accessibility issues and suddenly that thing that was funded by government dollars back in 2013 doesn't have that evolution and the ones that are supported by publishers by people who make stuff for schools as Uh businesses start to get all of those features and then there starts to be a so is this OER thing able to keep up and um, And so I think the interesting case right now is science. A lot of people have said, well, there's new science standards. Mm -hmm. Should we have an OER curriculum? And yet I think the fact that Amplify was out there probably faster than any of the OER efforts with the thing that people look at and say, oh, wow, that's what we were hoping science curriculum would be. So there isn't Mm -hmm. quite a philanthropic or government need to catalyze it in order to have a good curriculum. I think a lot of people are like, well, if we built something, we would build something kind of like what the mm-hmm. folks at Amplify and the Lawrence Hall of Science, we built it together with uh, the Lawrence Hall of Science at Berkeley in, mm-hmm. in California, and, um, and so does it make sense to replicate, but maybe with less resources, mm-hmm. the thing that's already out there and it's getting a lot of traction around the country? So I think that it will continue to be a mix. I will say at the same time, uh-huh. we also are the publishers of Core Knowledge Language Arts, which was one of the OER programs that got uh, promoted through Engage New York and got a lot of traction around the country, and we love that model too. Like that means lots of free, uh, inexpensive adoption um, around the country. Mm-hmm. In the middle of this, I think is a middle ground, okay. which is something that we've started to offer to states. So there are some states who said we love your science thing, but we're kind of interested in open. Mm-hmm. And when we say so, what is it about open that you that you want? They often list a few things and. One of those things, for example, is we want to make sure that everyone who could train in the subject, we're going to have people training on science education, that they can freely use your stuff without asking for permission. They can make slide decks, they can cut and paste things, they can, and, um, and, and so, and they, or they may have a list of a few other things, and so what we have done is we've said, so we will grant you all of those rights in the license, even though our authors, and I respect them, are saying... We have, a, we have a reputation in science education, which is that all of the science in the curriculum we make is excellent and represents a scientific consensus and is accurate. What we can't have is the enthusiasm of sort of mix and remix, right. deciding to just, that maybe climate change isn't as real a thing as we right. believe it is, or, okay. or to drop evolution. And so, so they, they have taken a stand that I sort of respect, which is like, no, wait, we authored this. Yep. We don't necessarily want it to just be a dynamic resource to do with what you want in the way that frankly like the Linux kernel can be Mm -hmm. and you're not necessarily damaging Linux if somebody goes off and builds something flaky Mm -hmm. but if if someone decides to take the thing called Amplify Science authored by the Lawrence Hall of Science and suddenly make it right their own and remix it and treat things in the wrong order Mm -hmm. so so there's i think what we're going to end up with is a license that grants to states and districts Mm -hmm. all of the rights that they want all the flexibility that they want but keeps the idea of a unitary author and a Mm -hmm. and a copyright Um, sticking with the curriculum uh, as
0: a metaphor, right? You mm-hmm. and your colleague co-wrote a paper about eleven years ago yeah. that people still refer to as, you know, required mandatory <laughs> reading for entrepreneurs. And yes. I believe the title is K twelve Entrepreneurship. Was it like slow entry, distance exit. exit? Yeah. Um, so you know, at, just as textbooks have to get updated every few years, um, yeah. if you were to, if you had to write an update to yes. that paper. Would you still give it that title? Would it still be called Slow Entry, Entry and distant, distant Exit?
1: Yeah, so uh, it's, it's been fascinating to think about it. Um, and certainly, I think EdSearch just reposted it on, uh, on the website mm-hmm. since it, it, it had sort of faded into internet uh, obscurity uh, with a few um, college it's syllabi being the only places you could still find it. But now, EdSearch, where it all happens. Um, uh, has posted it. So it's back in, it's back in the mainstream media. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, it was interesting rereading it uh, in preparation for talking about it at, uh, here at ASU GSV. And um, I think what I would say is there are a bunch of things that have changed since we wrote it. And there are probably more things on the list that seem to me to be more similar mm. than different. And the, the big change would be uh, I think at the time we wrote it, there were a small handful of people who were willing to make commercial investments in K-12 companies. It just wasn't a mm-hmm. thing. Certainly not ed tech, which seemed a little uh, um, uh, too risky at the time and not what schools were doing. And I think both the evolution of what schools are doing, but also the sense of a informed capital market mm-hmm. that players like EdSurge have actually done a lot to put in place, that people know that there are companies and that some of them are doing well and that that there are investors who are interested in that, just telling that story has been a helpful part of this. And there have been some successful exits of companies that that wake people up to the fact that there is a business opportunity here. What's the most
0: frustrating thing there to you that hasn't changed since 2010?
1: Yeah. Um, I mean, I think it's, you know, one of the things we talked about there is that there isn't uh, a return on investment mindset in education. People don't think in terms of... A financial return on investment? I actually like mean an educational return account. on investment. So one of the points we made is at the time we were making that reading assessment I talked about early, and it saved teachers a lot of time that they used to spend filling out these inventories on paper and then having to type data entry into, uh, into computers to, to let the district know how they were doing. And... When we would say to the districts, so we're saving a lot of teacher time, like 40 hours a teacher, and that's worth this much to you mm-hmm. in dollars when you think about what you're paying those teachers, they would shrug and say, yeah, but teacher time's a sunk cost. I'm not, it's not like I'm going to fire teachers in order to with the time that I save. So I'm still paying them. They're, they're, they've got a little more time on their hands because of your thing, but it doesn't really help. Um, huh. And then it's, they also weren't saying, I, you know, and we're watching reading scores go up by this amount and reading scores are worth X to us because in fact, they're one of the main things we invest in is mm-hmm. having... So both the like student outcomes kind of impact but also the teacher efficiency, um, neither one of those ways that other enterprises might evaluate how effective are we. Mm-hmm. The fact that that hasn't really changed. There's probably more talk about it, there's more measurement, but the idea that as we buy something we might Um, evaluate or even pay for it in terms of how helpful is it in terms of getting results. I feel like I've gone around the country being willing to do deals with school districts that are, you know, don't pay me unless I get real results for taking kids who are at risk around reading out of risk and taking kids who are right in the middle and lifting them to the next level. And schools are like, yeah, I don't really know how to do that. Either I buy your product or I don't buy your product. I don't have a way of holding you to a performance contract. I think if we could get that in place, lots of other things would change.
0: Larry, I want to also um, get um, another, uh, another thing you wrote. Uh-huh. I recently kind of, you know, got into the EdSearch Mainstream Media. It's a letter that you wrote about, you know, the limitations around personalized learning. Yeah. Is that something that you think, um, you know, the industry or maybe us have maybe hyped up too much and set unrealistic expectations about, Should we, do we owe it to educators and parents to temper at least what, what is actually feasible and possible yeah. when we talk about personalized or adaptive learning technologies?
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's, that, uh, you know, I wrote something that was the first part of a two-part argument, and. One of the education bloggers said, can I publish the first part of it? And as a result, I think I'm out there as, as a voice of pure skepticism about personalized learning. And I think um, uh, in many ways, we've been working in personalized learning for a long time. It's a thing that we believe has a lot of power. But your point that there is a kind of hype about what it is and maybe a misdirection of, of energy around what parts of personalizing the learning experience are likely to be the most productive. And the, the point I made in that piece is uh, there's an idea that's very attractive to engineers. Um, and as EdTech has drawn lots of engineers into the space uh, that has, uh, is, it, I, in that piece, I call it the engineering model of personalization. And essentially what it does is it says when you look at a classroom, it is a not very well designed network because there are th- 30 different nodes, the kids, who are each processing in their own way, and there's only one transmitter, that teacher, or sometimes kids work in groups, there's a few, but there's certainly not a parallel processing machine that can give each of those kids exactly what they need at all times. And so given that shortcoming of the engineering design of a classroom, let's fix it by having parallel processing so we can feed the right thing to each kid at each moment. That's a neat idea from an engineering point of view, so people are drawn to it. And then it even makes sense at a pedagogical level, because what it seems to be saying is um, that experience that each of us has had, where we get one-on-one tutoring, where somebody teaches us directly, Mm -hmm. uh, that, that works, and it feels great, and some of your best learning experiences are that way. So wouldn't personalized learning be... Using computers, every kid gets what they want at exactly the moment and it feels like one-on-one tutoring. Mm -hmm. And the argument that I make is actually we just don't know enough about how to do that. Mm -hmm. And it's not clear that we'd want it to be the main thrust of what we were doing even if we could. So Mm -hmm. we don't know enough about how to measure exactly where kids are to know what to give them next. Mm -hmm. We don't actually have a great library of the next thing to give them. a lot of, and it's not clear that if we did, kids want to be in a mechanistic system or the teachers want to be in one in which every kid's on their own little personalized learning journey. And so the argument that I'll make in part two of that, uh, and we're doing a session about that later this afternoon, is um, that there are a bunch of ways that teachers have always personalized learning in the classroom. Scaffolding different kids so that they get different kinds of support to participate in one experience, because that's what teachers can, can do is cultivate one or maybe two mm-hmm. simultaneous experiences in a classroom giving kids personalized feedback so taking each kid who might be at a different level and giving them the direct supports that they need mm-hmm. um I, I, and and uh, for the kid who's really ready for the next level of challenge pushing them Uh, to do something more different and for the kid who needs a little bit of encouragement to feel they can succeed at what they're doing already in class, um, giving that so that teachers have always personalized feedback Mm -hmm. and good teachers do phenomenal job of that. And so shouldn't the technology be helping with a few more of those things that classroom teachers are trying to do, that great teachers do a lot of, Mm -hmm. um, and the technology could make them better. The engineering model is asking personalized learning to introduce a kind of foreign object into the classroom that does leave the interaction between teachers and students sometimes a little bit diminished mm-hmm. by, by that vision of personalizing. Cool.
0: Well, I look forward to reading part two uh, of that missive, um, where you can always write on Ed Surge if you want to f- share it with us. Absolutely. And, uh, yeah, thank you for taking the time to join us this afternoon um, from ASUGSV Summit. Um, yeah, I hope to hear, we'll look ho- forward to hearing more from Amplify. Hopefully Thanks a lot. in the future Thanks. and live up to your name, Amplify.
1: Absolutely. Nice Thanks days. a lot. Tony. All right. it's been a pleasure. Thank you, Larry.
0: Thank you for listening to this week's EdSurge On Air podcast. My name is Tony Wan, and I'm the managing editor at EdSurge. If you haven't already, check us out on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud for other EdSurge On Air episodes. This episode was produced by me with an assist from my colleague, Jeff Young, and we'll be back next week for more conversations on the future of education. We'll see you then.